Listener Production. Rob Sitch, thank you for submitting to this interrogation. My pleasure. Trust no one. The level of sedition, anti-authority behaviour and advertiser-unfriendly thought crime has reached record levels, especially amongst Australia's elites. Treason. Luckily, the men and men of The Chaser have been commissioned by Border Force to conduct interrogations and sort out the subversives from the Patriots. Betrayal. In conjunction with ASIO and the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Protocols, this is Extreme Vetting with The Chaser. The Chaser. Charles, today on behalf of Border Force, we're questioning someone who's long been a thorn in the side of Australia's most vital institutions. From our police force with Pacific Heat to our tabloid current affairs shows with Frontline to the Australian government itself through the Hollow Men and his current series, Utopia, which mm. takes the piss out of a fictitious nation-building authority. It's Rob Sitch, Charles. It's Rob Sitch. Rob Sitch from Degeneration. Indeed. Which, of course, uh, we all grew up with. We did. Warped a... Generation of uh, young minds, impressionable minds, shows you how dangerous satire can be. You really can. We could have joined Border Force years ago, Charles, without the lure of a comedy career dangled in front of us by dissidents mm. like Rob Sitch. We could have spent decades more doing these interviews. Just think. Let's see if we can turn Rob Sitch into Rob Snitch. There are some moments <laughs> in podcast intros, Charles, where a joke is so good that they become... Champagne comedy. <laughs> Can we start with your full name, please? Robert Ian Marksich. Wouldn't have picked you as an Ian. No, and uh, you don't get a choice in that one. <laughs> one of my, my dad's great friends was a fellow called Ian, and he thought, wouldn't it be a great honour to pass on against my son's will? And one of the more bland names in the universe. And your age, Rob? 55. I think. A bit of hesitation there, Doc. No, I've got, to, I've got to... You stop counting after 40, Charles. <laughs> now, your place of residence, Rob, and I guess what we're really trying to establish here is do you ever leave South Yarra? Less and less so. The, um, as I often say, the, uh, the coat of arms of my local council is the stop-go sign because so much construction's going on. There's a bit of a thing in uh, old Melbourne town now that if you don't live near a railway, you're, you're a commuter. It's, um, it's tough. So I live in South Yarra. And we've actually, in an earlier bit of surveillance, we've visited the working dog offices, which were really <laughs> lovely. So it's all in the one area and you filmed, filmed the panel over the road once upon a time. It's, you're kind it's, of the unofficial mayor of South Yarra, aren't you? No, that's true. We moved into a, an old um, like Schmutter warehouse where they used to um, make clothes and... Uh, and one day, the, the, the mark of quality appeared on the roof. Asbestos, do not touch. <laughs> now, I just want to go back to your early childhood. Just thinking about, you know, before the age of 10, mm-hmm. what was the naughtiest thing you ever did? I think I stabbed my brother in the head. Uh, that's, not, that's criminal, isn't it? That's not naughty. That's pretty naughty. No, this, <laughs> this, uh, this helps us build a, a kind of personality type for you. That might actually come in handy for us, actually. There was provocation. It was in a sandpit. Um, I think I was four, maybe, and something did, like that. did he have to go to hospital? Uh, I, back then, uh, the, the sort of level of, you know, it will grow over, it will heal was, 
was the the peak of medicine back then. Did, um, the did I, he survive? Oh yeah. Oh no, no, no. He's. Uh, I visit him every couple of months in the hospital now. But uh, yeah, no, he's he was fine. I mean, I didn't have much power. It was a it was a you know like a sandpit tool. So, but, but he but he ended up a lawyer, didn't he? No, he oh. actually ended up in the clothes industry. <laughs> Right. So that might explain. Actually, the others are lawyers, so maybe maybe there is a slight IQ drop. Maybe the injured brother got your other brother to represent him to try to prosecute. <laughs> and look, speaking of, of injuries, Rob, uh, let's yeah. go to your university years. What did you study? Studied medicine. I think there could be a link there. Is it possible you were trying to atone for No, no, I was, I was trying to get away from debating. And um, I heard the, the phrase moot court. Have you heard that? And I thought, I'm not sure I'm yeah, up for I, all that. I did law. That's, I never set foot in one of those places. It's, but I wasn't very scientific, lawyers. you know, so when I turned, biologically scientific, as in, and so I sort of, in a Homer Simpson moment, when I looked down the microscope, I li- literally in the first week of doing medicine, I said, I said, Jesus, you can see cells. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever have to dismember yeah, a corpse? Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. So that was... Anatomy is, that's probably becoming old school now, but anatomy was like the the grand poobah of subjects. So you did that for, you know, the best part of two years. Rob, we might just step outside for a moment, uh, if that's all right. Uh-oh. Charles, this goes deeper than I thought. We've got early violence, even against a sibling. That we've got cutting up dead bodies. He's like the Dexter of Australian comedy. And, and to think he was my hero... I hope he's compatible with prison. Sorry about that, Rob. Everything okay with you? I'm under two litres in the alcohol and cigarettes, so... Yeah, look, we've confiscated them for now, but uh, let's see how this goes. Now, how did you end up in comedy? How did all this uh, this medicine and trying to avoid debating uh, lead you to your career? I decided in maybe the second year at university, I thought, I've never done anything theatrical. And... Um, and so, I, I, what did I, I... Other than sending your brother to an operating theatre. That's it, yeah. No, I did actually a French night. I got up as a... What's a butcher in f- French? <clears throat> I can't even remember. Boucher, I believe. Boucher, well, I was one of them. <laughs> and I couldn't speak French, and I just learnt two sentences for that. But I made a comeback when I was about 19, and I thought, oh, I'll try out for the play. Didn't get in. Tried out the next year, didn't get in. Got in the third year, and... My job, I thought I was pretty proud of myself, was not to speak, <laughs> but it was to do sound effects while on stage the whole time. You were the Michael Winslow of the play, were you? Not with a microphone, like with milk bottles. And, and it was a play called Our Town by Thornton Wilder. Serious the, play? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I didn't add to that. So <laughs> a, a friend of mine who was doing medicine was playing The Undertaker and actually said, this role's beneath me. <laughs> And I'm leaving, and they offered it to, to me. And as he was walking out, he literally said, he goes, how about we go and audition for the comedy review? And it was that haphazard. Wow. So, but for sound effects and an unhappy undertaker, you might yes. never have done what you've done. No, it was a close run thing. In fact, had I been given a good part in Thornton Wilders. Yes. Um, <laughs> you could have classic. been uh, You could have been a... The John Bell of your generation. I would have been at the Sydney Theatre Company, crying, bleeding, doing something. And what was the review? Was it the medicine review or was it... No, it was the law review. So... <laughs> you try to avoid the debaters and the lawyers and they got you in the end. <laughs> they got me. Well, funny enough, they had... Um, I think I got in because the director uh, had 
had a very, very, um, he had the Angela Merkel policy that is, is if you went to the audition, you got in sort of, so everyone was welcome. And, uh, and so the cast was, I think over 60 without a cull. (laughs) And at one point in order to employ, employ everyone usefully, Someone worked out that there were four ballet dancers. And so in the middle of the second act, we paused to do a ballet. <laughs> so inclusive. It was like a, you know, like a toilet break, but no one could leave. It, it, <laughs> Is that where the idea came from for the late show toilet break, the highlight of every episode? That, that's funny. That was, no, that was all Tony. Tony's Martin is, is a, loves, always been a bit of an archivist. And so we were... I'm about to use the phrase ill-fated. We did an ill-fated uh, series of pilots at Channel 9 uh, and uh, quite a while back. But that gave us security clearance for the archives into the old Channel 9 stuff. Oh, brilliant. And so he kept going through and pulling them out and pulling them out. And and it sort of came from that period. And funnily enough, a lot of that stuff had been forgotten. And you still see s- some of Tony's finds pop up on 20 to 1. Because, you know, they were almost on the verge of throwing out those tapes. (laughs) Then they had potluck, literally. So, Rob, the first group of yours that came to the attention of authorities was the D-Generation. How did that get together? Did that follow on from the review scene? We were. (laughs) It's sort of starting that up, isn't it? Again, a haphazard moment. We decided, um, we did a couple of law reviews and thought, how about we we, we, um, bring back the Melbourne University review, which was the, the start of uh, Barry Humphreys and Dame Edna, I think, was, you know, years before. Same theatre, and we thought that was a bit of romance. We'll bring it all back and take a year off. And that, that sort of plan pulled a hamstring pretty early, but we kept sort of struggling on. There were enough kind of um, festivals and things, and we would – and then the, uh, the Castanet Club, which was a famous kind of cabaret act, had to go to Edinburgh because they, they were sort of – they were – hijacked they were over there because they were so popular and we were the fill-in while they were away another great compliment and while we were there a, a fellow from the abc called frank ward who only passed away a few years ago came along and said come and do a pilot because they decided to you know like the abc of now they decided to go young all of a sudden and um and so he confided to me years later he said uh, i said why, why did you why did you choose us he said well to be frank I, I didn't enjoy your show. <laughs> but he said, I looked around and everybody under 25 was laughing. And he said, so that was sort of the end of the decision. There must have been something there. Well, look, at least you didn't um, do what my co-interviewer Charles Firth did, uh, which was be part of a documentary on the ABC about his arts review. And at one point, uh, he was seen going, this is awesome, this show. We're going to take it national. We're going to tour it forever. Um, so it sounds like you played that hand pretty well, actually. Dom, I think we should focus on Rob. <laughs> but it is amazing how the university reviews do um, basically serve as a, as a comedy pipeline. I think there was a show called Shenanigans, which I've always loved as a name, not long after that. How did yeah, you uh, Tony go started one called Midnight Shenanigans on radio. I love. I, I share your love of the word. I, I read a Bill Bryson book that was it at home or something, and he came to the conclusion that in like the seventeen hundreds, eighteen hundreds, just about everyone that made a discovery was the reverend, and then he went back and looked at it and realised that reverends got a stipend, you know, like a, you know, a unemployment employment benefit, to to a, 
you know, reasonable amount, and they had time on their hands. And I sometimes think the special source of comedy coming out of the universities is just time. The show that you did, The Late Show, was absolute must-watch for us growing up as teenagers. And um, I look back at some of the episodes this week. You played a, a stuntman in a series called Shit Scared. And I really want to know, um, you were constantly doing these stunts. Things went wrong. Did you actually ever get hurt making that? Badly. And so... Really? So the, yeah. No, it's... it's it was so... But not in... Actually, not hospitalised, but... Well, that's something Actually, quite... Nice quite injured and one day oh something silly we were we had to have my ass on fire <laughs> there were a lot of things on fire throughout the late show <laughs> so uh, so my ass was on fire because they used this special chemical but in putting out looking like you're putting out the fire um mick poured water on my ass which actually took the acidic chemical through the clothes and onto my ass and literally burnt, acid burned my whole bum Oh, gosh. So the in the segment, the idea is that Mick gets everything wrong and ends up injuring you. So that actually happened in yeah, your life? Yeah. No, then one day we, we went to swing the fence. I was, I was on a gate that was swinging and literally, you know, it was like a, a scene from Wipeout. was flung off it and ripped my hand open. It was all that sort of stuff. Not enough to... I think but, we we blew up a bus once. Yeah, didn't, and, you, didn't you get in trouble? Didn't you blow up something in a park... And then you got into trouble from the police for exploding a bomb? No, we, we, this was pre-9-11, and back then you could explode bombs without much <clears throat> trouble. And we had a really great, a really great weapons guy at, uh, at <laughs> the ABC. I remember the first production meeting, he put his hand up. He said, I just want to know, would you be needing automatic weapons? And, <laughs> and, and you we immediately went, went, yes, we are now. There's, there's our guy. <laughs> and it turned out the ABC had an armory of real weapons and he had a license and, and, um, and so they a big safe there for all the cop shows and things like that. And he was also an explosives expert. And, um, and so occasionally, you know, it's, it's funny, gee, good old times. It was nothing to find an empty, uh, block of land and let off a really quite huge explosion. That's fascinating, Rob. Look, we'll just be a moment. Charles, I think we I, have to call for backup right I think, now. I think we've got him. Should we just call off the interview? Just and... get the SWAT ready because we may need them to burst in at any second. You know the signal. Okay, I'll give them a call. All right, let's get back in there. Rob, it's been really fascinating just looking back on all these stories. One thing and, I want to ask... And please, just uh, keep going. Like, um, all this stuff is really interesting. It's really helping us out a lot. Mm. Thank you very much. One thing I wanted to ask as well um, about The Late Show, possibly the most famous moment in the series, and certainly on the cover of the DVD, is when you popped up with uh, a bottle of champagne. Oh, yeah. And I've always wanted to know, um, was Tommy expecting it? Was that a planned shenanigan or was that workplace bullying? It was workplace bullying. I, he had recorded, a, I think it was a really bad stump camp sketch. And in the rehearsal, it was so bad. Normally, you know, we, we, the, the bar was pretty low. Normally, we you had to fill an hour a week. It's, it's not had easy. To, had to fill an hour a week. That was, that was we only ever did half an hour and that was hard enough. It's, and you know what? And, and it was Saturday night where, where people, you know, half the audience wanted, wanted a detective show on in its place. So, but I t- turned to him and I said, look, I, I normally wouldn't say this, but that's, uh, that's, that hasn't worked out. You're <laughs> <laughs> yeah, much kinder than our, our writer's room. Okay. <laughs> well, he sort of said, I, I think you're probably right. The only problem I have is I don't have anything to replace it. So I'm going to put it to air. And I go, Tom, you know, 
seriously, he goes, sorry, it's, what is it, you know, we've got an hour left. And I go, okay, I just, can you give me the right of reply? And he goes, yep, whatever that means. And so I went into costume <laughs> and got a, got a, uh, I, I got props. I got a champagne glass, and I got a. Was it, I was in a tuxedo, wasn't I? I got you a were. Tuxedo. Oh, yeah. you were. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And literally, he did the thing, and I just appeared from, and and then he tweaked. He goes, "Oh, this is what you mean by right of reply." So it was really to cover up the the worst comedy sketch that I think has ever gone to it. But one of the things about the last show that was so much fun, particularly for us, is just how. Often things would go wrong and that was the funniest. And I think you, we were aware you were going to condemn an entire generation of comedians to being really slapdash and last minute, because we certainly are. No, and you wouldn't do live like that anymore. But here's the problem we had is that we didn't, we didn't have Twitter or social media telling us that. So I still get shocked when people go, oh, we used to watch it every Saturday night. I go... You didn't have people meters because <laughs> we, but what I, I always remember that there was a, a core of commissioner at the front desk and he used to record complaints. And after our first show went to air, it went, started at 10 o'clock and at 10.02, <laughs> the first complaint was recorded. And I thought we got two minutes in before someone and that, so we sort of lived in with complaints for the first year. And then, you know, the odd letter would come in and the, and the odd good, good sort of word of mouth. But I mean, now if you do something and a teenager's watching, you, you've got a Twitter feed. Well, 15-year-old nerds uh, named Chaz and Dom taped every single episode. Is that so, right? Well, I, that I, may be the only copy. I had to get permission to watch it because it was past my bedtime. <laughs> How old were you, Charles? I, like, I would have been me. I would have been 14 or 15, but I, rem- I do remember like 10 o'clock was when I was supposed to be in bed. And, um, and so it, it was a special thing to watch The Late Show. I've still got the VHS tapes rotting away if you want them. Now, uh, Rob Sitch, Frontline, the next big project. And um, what was the inspiration? I mean, there, there were so many tabloid current affairs shows back there in were. the day. It, was there it, it one was. in particular that, that caused Frontline to explode not, in your brain? Not, it was, there was, funnily enough, there was a surfeit of them. It was, it was really, when you think of reality television being the genre of our time now, current affairs was the genre back then. I mean... People were launching new shows all the time. I think it was also because I used to do the character of Mike Moore as a kind of a like a like a like a collage of the of, of the of the attitude, and used to amuse the others. And so the, we had the character, and I used to muck around with it. And then I can't remember. Maybe Tom Gleisner said, "Let's just show in that we could do we could almost do a, a fake real show." And and it came from that, but it's sort of um, I'm not sure we would have done it without that the sort of silliness of the character. And did you did you have sources at uh, a current affair and whatever the other? Funnily enough, was? because what? they were putting to air everything they did. <laughs> it's not like you had to search. It wasn't a hard search. Um, the only thing that we would touch base about was uh, how you organise an office, and sort of if some I sort of um. Really, the show was sort of half office and half current affairs, and and so we got. We, I mean, still to this day, our greatest amusement it possibly is is the way offices change and evolve, and and office humour still amuses. Yeah, us. we'll get to Utopia soon. But Rob, your character Mike Moore was a vain, self indulgent um, buffoon. <laughs> How hard was it for you to inhabit that role? <laughs> well, I was only talking to Kate Blanchett about this the other day. It, <laughs> days, no, it's. I often think that your best characters are a collection of your most stupid moments. And so when we were writing The Castle, I actually said, 
And it was only the laughter of my friends and partner that alerted to me. <laughs> I was once picking up the trading post at the time and I looked, it was a favourite section called miscellaneous. And I, and I piped up and I went, red telephone box, $600. And Jane said to me, what would you want with a red telephone box? And I said, I don't know, but they wouldn't come up that often. <laughs> and I still slightly regret it. Rob, we might just step outside for a moment. Now, this is really interesting, but you know what would be even more interesting? What would be more interesting, Charles? An ad break. You mean you want to interrupt this fascinating conversation with one of Australia's greatest comedy writers and performers? I just think it would be more interesting. Oh, great idea. So how did you get into writing narrative comedy? Like, What was the process from going from, you know, two-minute, three-minute sketches to sort of... Well, that's exactly the thing that... That transition was probably the one we feared the most. And The Late Show was kind of, you know, an experiment. We just... We call it an experiment. We just threw it against the wall. And some things got longer and some... And every minute you added to an idea, we realised it got more difficult. And so someone in the film industry said, you know, you should do a sort of a crazy, wacky film. We said, yeah, not yet. Let's try 25 minutes. So it was a... That's as conscious as we got. We realised there was a sort of a... There's an attraction in making something longer and making something deadpan. Probably our favourite... Um, piece of comedy of all time is Spinal Tap. And not because we wanted to do something in rock and roll music. It's because when we saw that, we thought that's the comedy in our heads, which is that absolute dead flat reality. Um, no one winking, no one admitting anything's funny. And so in a, in a way, sort of 10 years after that, it was Frontline was a, an attempt to get back to, to that style. But getting into sort of good, well-structured stories... Was there a process that you sort of? I mean, that is that is hard stuff to do. Yeah, and you're still doing it with with the utopia and everything. I as well. still, yeah. find, I still find it hard to be honest. I, I, it's like when I go and see movies and they're two and a half hours long. I think, what are you doing? It's every half hour is is double the di- the difficulty. Mm. Um, but we, funnily enough, we came across. We got, I got one tip for everybody is that we used a whiteboard in a as a prop in a, one of those um, printing rotating whiteboards. Oh, yeah. Mm. And the joke was that I accidentally pressed uh, all the, the dastardly deed um, and it turned behind me and, I, and, I, and all, of the, all the tricks that were used on me <laughs> appeared behind me. But in actual fact, we kept that prop and started using it and we realised how brilliant it is to sit around a room and plot a half an hour. So yeah. it is that collective, the process of being in the room and just... Oh, especially structure. Yeah, we sort of... Uh, and then after that, I call them dental appointments. Two people go away and think they've come up with something brilliant. Not that we're trying to find out what your technique is for writing narrative comedy and copy it or anything like that. No, that... <laughs> oh, no, you can have this one. And then you, need, then you make sure that one person stands out with nothing invested and they're the dentist. And so when you come in thinking your teeth are shiny bright, they find all the tooth decay. Now, Rob, at one point in your career, if I remember correctly, you you went off to the US and did an MBA or something like that. Was that at the same time as Funky Squad and was that deliberate? (laughs) No, no. So funny enough, we did Funky Squad originally as a radio play for two years, two years, close to, a sort of a daily radio play. Um, And uh, we're very fond of cops. Um, no, I just, I, I'm still a bit like that. I could easily take another year off and go and disappear somewhere in the Mediterranean, to be honest. Because I was watching it back on YouTube. It's, it's all there. And uh, yeah, there was, where's Rob? I was wondering. So there you go. No, no, I, no, they, 
they had made a pact that they weren't going to do anything, but they're sort of, they start to fidget. A couple of, a couple of members of my groups have got sh- short attention spans and they, uh, if you blink, they, uh, Russell Coit, if you've ever seen that as an example of that, we made a, a pact that we weren't going to uh, invent anything for a while. And then Tom Gleisner sat in a in his, his little office one day and came up with that and went off and made it without the assistance of the rest of us. Uh, now, you've made three films. Uh, I mean, you've been involved in many, but you've made three films, The Castle, The Dish, and Any Questions for Ben. What did you learn through making them? I reckon what I learnt is no longer applicable. Um, <laughs> I w- it's that I think... You know, if and you've got to have something that the story's the story's hard to write. Prior to CGI, can I say the story is hard to write, and so I don't reckon that's as applicable now. I reckon, and back when we started, an original idea was the the zenith of of creative um, art. But now it's sort of I wouldn't start there. You know, if you're trying to do something now, you'd find something that's been around for fifty years, or you know, like. The Beauty and the Beauty and the Beast, I think, is a novel from the 1700s. So, I reckon that's now. You've almost got to the audience has got to go in sort of half knowing what's going to happen. That's really depressing. I, it's I got agree. to be a reheated idea. Or you've got to you've got to, the attraction's already got to be there. You know the 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 sort of I I went and saw Baby Driver the other day with a 14 year old, and he thought it was absolutely awesome. Knew the director, knew it all, knew where it came from. And, and I think you've got to come through that door. But uh, don't you think some of the inventiveness has actually moved onto TV and the streaming services, that actually that's where the real innovation is? And you guys have too, haven't you? Well, we sort of, we, in many ways, we sort of never left TV. We sort of, maybe um, by accident, we, we picked that trend a long time ago. Um I heard was told a story. Someone went to pitch a film in Hollywood, and they're a pretty big name, and and thought they were going to get a good hearing. And halfway through their pitch, the the head of the of the studio stopped and said, "Oh, sorry. Oh my God, sorry. Someone hasn't told you. We don't do original ideas." <laughs> and, oh wow! And so, and that's you know that's ten years well, over ten years ago. Now I heard that, and I thought, "Wow, that's that sounds it's not like someone made it up," but. Now most of the studios are a bit like that. They've got to be a book or they've got to be – so that's all locked in. So now TV is the place where you can go and muck around. So, Rob, you've been across a lot of media. You've um, you've done books as well, uh, Mulvaney, A Fake Tan and San Sombrero. Now, while we can see that they're funny, they have caused our colleagues at DFAT no end of embarrassment, especially when they tried to establish <laughs> diplomatic relations with those countries. Um, where did that idea come from? Sando, Tom and I were going around – we decided to do a group holiday and we were going around Portugal and we had a Michelin guide and Santo, he was reading out the histories of the cathedrals, but it seemed like every sort of historic monument was covered in scaffolding being redone for, <laughs> I think Lisbon was going to be the UNESCO world city or something like that. And um, so Santo one day opened it, he said, uh, that's the uh, the cathedral of Santa Correa and uh, some of the scaffolding dates back to the 15th century. <laughs> And so we started making up Michelin jokes and you'd pick up Michelin and get through two or three real facts and then try and add a fake fact. And it became just like a parlor game. And then Santo said to Tom, that'd make a great book and then forgot about it for five or six years. 
And then Tom told me once and I said, oh, that's a great idea. And we were going to do it as a prank and then we realised writing 300 pages is probably more than, <laughs> that's too much effort for a prank. A lot of these creative tasks, sort of, they seem to have all happy, you know, jolly, you know, you just get along with all your colleagues and everything like that. Do you have any disagreements and how do you resolve those disagreements? I think, I was only talking about this the other day. The most terrifying thing we have in our group is that everyone has the power of veto, but you use it, you own it. You know, it's that pottery barn, you break it, you own it. The other thing is, is that most projects, like the early fun period, (laughs) (laughs) that goes away and you need enthusiasm. And we've learned there's no point starting a project with where someone's going, yeah, that could be like, that's not going to get it done. So we virtually don't attempt anything that all of us don't, aren't really enthusiastic about. So let's move on to a project that you've admitted is nowhere near your early fun period, uh, Utopia, the current series. We're quite flummoxed on behalf of um, our colleagues. What on earth could there be to satirise about the Australian government? It was a struggle. Um, the great thing about governments when you drift into the satirical world is your neighbour's mistake is of little consequence, but the governments have got such big checkbooks screw-ups are on such a large scale. There's something inherently amusing about them. And the other thing that they do is that they announce things before they've they've sorted. <laughs> There's no 2.0. Mm. And and so that's that area is quite amusing. But where I lived, we were the early adopters of the desal units. And that was one of the ones where we first thought, God, that's funny. They, they announced a desal plant here, <laughs> and the day after they announced it, the ten-year drought stopped, and it didn't <laughs> stop. <laughs> it didn't stop raining for until Noah turned up, and and in actual fact, the the building of the desal plant here, I think, was delayed due to wet weather. <laughs> Don, can I see you for a sec? Sure, just a moment, Rob. How did he find out about the desal plant? That's like classified top secret. I know. There's clearly some leaking going on, Charles. What? The desal plant's leaking? No, Charles. I mean, someone on the inside is giving him the sweet, sweet info. Someone inside the desal plant? No, Charles. Someone inside the top levels of government is telling Rob Sitch exactly what our colleagues are saying. And I've got an idea about who might be responsible. And his name's Sal. Oh, God, Charles. Rob, there's a lot of um, confusion and inertia and uh, people speaking bureaucraties in Utopia. Did all of that come naturally after many years of dealing with the ABC? That, uh, yes, but more so we actually operate an office and have for years and years, and it's, it's sometimes we notice what we're doing, like tiny things. Like Tom tried to opt out of his customer satisfaction survey after his car got serviced one day and that sent him down a rabbit hole and the only thing he was dissatisfied with was the satisfaction survey. <laughs> and so we'd, we'd, stuff like that, we'd start laughing about and someone came in and goes, and those gl- muffins are gluten-free, of course, and then we realised the reason we were getting gluten-free muffins was for a person who was no longer working with us and <laughs> like all that tiny, tiny stuff. So we've always loved that and then... It came from that, and Tom keeps a really good notebook. And then we put the little minor stuff beside the huge stuff, the billion-dollar stuff. And that was the original idea. But our, we were originally going to make it about one project that never got up. We identified this this piece of wasteland, and and we're almost going to call it wasteland. And 
We're going to have um, time-lapse photography of it. <laughs> and for a whole series that the time-lapse photography showed, only the grass <laughs> grew, you know. And the viewing platform was the only thing that got built. But when we dug into it, we just found the whole world of infrastructure too amusing. Well, yeah, several of the plot lines in Utopia do have this sort of parallel with reality. Do you have sources like in the government that you use? We don't, not so much sources. We'll, we'll go and, I've got a, a mate who's in pretty heavy construction and I'll go and talk to him and it's more they say things like, oh, I've got nothing to tell you. And then they keep talking and I, and you just, your head drops off and, you, and he goes, don't you know that? I go, no, no one knows that, mate. And, <laughs> and it pens out. And I was, one half of an episode came up because I went, spoke with a friend who was, deals in, was the FOI officer, Freedom of Information Officer. And he talked about it and I only like had to change two words to literally take what he said <laughs> and put it in an episode. <laughs> There's a lot of concern actually with throughout the government uh, with your focus on lanyards across Utopia. <sighs> People are worried that uh, you've successfully penetrated just about every department. It, lanyards are, they are, <laughs> they're the modern tattoo, aren't they? Like bring on iris scans. It, I, where we shoot it, it's the lanyard postcode of Melbourne <laughs> where <laughs> that a combination of a lanyard and a fluoro vest you could uh, seriously you could go anywhere well this is the thing we found when we started doing the chaser I remember we went down to Melbourne actually to the Aston by-election and we just walked straight in because we were wearing suits and there were hundreds of protesters do you remember Charles mm. and they they couldn't come anywhere near and I kind of went up to them and said do you realize we've we're making a comedy series we just walked in in suits and the kind of smelly green was like I wouldn't wear a suit so uh, nowadays it's the lanyard and the high vis you can get in anyway. So you know how to uh, penetrate government departments is what you're saying, essentially, Rob. Well, they're not they're not the most um, discreet, but I often say that if if you read the same section of the paper for a month, it, it they sort of give themselves up because there was an old there's a book called by a famous screenwriter called Which Lie Did I Tell, and it was based on a Hollywood producer who was told so-and-so's on the, on the line. And before he picked it up, he, he said to his secretary, hang on, which lie did I tell him? <laughs> and and it's, it's a bit, when you put out a press release, things are so pre-processed and marketed that, that there's no investment in the truth of it. So two weeks later, they're saying something completely different. You go, hang on. So Series 3 of Utopia is about to come out. Um, is there any chance you give our colleagues across the government who'd have a heads up on uh, what kind of things they're going to, what, what can we expect? What, uh, who's going to be feeling things. a bit, a bit ashamed? Our admiration for the way that governments um, involve themselves in the startup you know, tech community is is truly impressive. Are you having think, an ideas boom? Are you? That's it. A, a innovation nation. The uh, and uh, we've we've long admired the government's handling of defence. <laughs> so. Um, so we we've just touched on that in a in a laudatory way, of course, but uh, it it's a, it comes from a point of admiration, definitely on that one. Port sales pop up as well. I think I think the nation's handled them well. <laughs> Actually, some people are wondering whether you guys would like to run the federal government. Be fun, wouldn't it? I once described it as a debating club with a big checkbook, and you know you know when you do debate as as a sort of a year ten. One of the things you realise about being a good debater is you don't have to believe what you're saying. If that thought appeals to you, that in combination with writing out checks for billions must be sort of um, quite bracing. There's a story, Steve Kilby from the church, I think, um, in his autobiography, wrote about debating Malcolm Turnbull in high school and how good he was and how much 
they hated him. So there you go. The debaters do end up running. Maybe you should have done debating at uni, Rob. Yeah, no, I, um, I, I don't regret that decision. Dom, can I just see you outside for a sec? Sure. He's got the motivation. He knows how to infiltrate the government. He seems quite angry about the government. He's got a lot of frustration, doesn't he? He's mm. got the ability to produce lanyards. Mm. Uh, he's got pyrotechnic skills. And he knows the whole trick about wearing high vis. This is Category 1 security threat. Mm. Should we test him out on the citizenship? Yeah, residence? but it's going to be a formality at this point. We need to get the van ready. Okay, I'll let them know. Okay, Rob, look, it's been fascinating. Um, just a couple of quick questions we just asked. They're, they're just kind of a bit of fun, mm. really. Uh, just No pressure. Yeah, doesn't really affect anything by this point. It's been lovely chat. What to you does mateship mean? Uh, it, <laughs> a liberal you, manifesto. You've worked a lot with your mates, though. I have. I never used the word mate. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, mate where I live is used as a term of aggression. So when you drop the name and you go, hey, mate, there's, there's no love in mate these days. Oh, my God. So the whole of South Yarra is, is a non-mate-friendly Yeah, place. no, the hipsters have taken over mate. Mate is something you, you get told as you wait for your decaf latte. What is, does the five-pointed white star of the flag of Torres Strait Islands represent? This is the question uh, from the actual citizenship test, mm. Rob, I should point out. Um, we assume you know the answer. Oh, of course I do. That would be, that would be Five the Southern star. Cross. <laughs> the Southern Cross. Yeah, I'm afraid no, that's not close. correct. What Wall? is it, Charles? It's the island groups in the Torres Strait. Ah. Rob. Ah. That doesn't bode very well at all. Um, Strike one. Okay. And uh, the name of the policy whereby white immigrants were given preference over people from other backgrounds. What was it called and when was it abolished? Again, this is from the actual citizenship test. Uh, it was the One Nation election agenda, was it? No, white Australia policy. And when was it abolished? Uh, it's going to be abolished in 2019, so, I think. Charles, was it, was I, it 70s? So either, Charles, there's a problem with the difficulty of the citizenship test if mm. actual citizens can't answer it, or Rob's not who he says he is. Exactly. All right, uh, Rob, we've come to... Um, We've come to an assessment of your situation and uh, really thank you for your time. Unfortunately, it's not good news for you um, and indeed we've been asked to stop Series 3 of Utopia from ever coming out and certainly making sure that um, there won't be a Series 4. So look, just stay right where you are, do not move and we'll see you in court. What? What happened to the Ministry of Appeals Tribunal? You didn't study law, mate. Made a bad choice. You might need the medical skill on the inside, though. Oh, well, I cop it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Extreme Vetting is written, presented and edited by Charles Firth and Dom Knight. The show is produced by Alex Mitchell, audio production by Nick Slater. The executive producer is Jamie Show. And remember, no one is safe. No one. Listener.